0: What is feminist existentialism, and how does it impact the lives of both men and women? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss feminist existentialism, objectification theory,
1: and the related
0: problems that women
1: experience. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Tomi Ann Roberts. Tomi Ann Roberts, PhD, is professor of psychology and chair of the department at Colorado College. She's a social psychologist and a personality psychologist, and her work centers on the sexual objectification of girls and women, self objectification, and the consequences of these for their embodied well being. Objectification Theory is the most cited article in the history of the journal Psychology of Women Quarterly. She has authored over 40 journal articles and chapters and co authored several books. She leverages psychological science as a consultant for reproductive health related product brands and as an expert witness and consultant in legal cases involving objectification and sexualization as forms of sexism and gender discrimination. Here's the interview with Dr. Roberts. Tomi Ann, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Hi, Tomi
2: Ann. I'm so happy to be here. Hi. Oh,
0: it's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you so much for being our guest. So Tomi Ann, you're known as an expert in feminism and the psychology of gender. You've developed several important ideas in these areas. Can we start with the title of your presentation that Ken and I saw? What is feminist existentialism?
2: Yeah, feminist existentialism owes its existence to Simone de Beauvoir, who began to partner with Sartre and develop her own thinking around the ideas of authenticity and life and death that are, of course, always of concern to to existentialists, but added this idea, I think, of the notion that he is always a subject, and she is other. She is derived from, she is the marked category. There are he's who are human, and there are she's who are female humans. And so de Beauvoir adds this notion of the ways in which the subject-object dichotomy is always part of gender relations. And then I think also an important part for feminist existentialists is really emphasizing the problems of living in a body. Because the body, of course, defines women's experiences and women's bodies sort of Illustrate and partake of life and death over and over again. And so, this notion of trying to arrive at some form of authentic freedom, selfhood, while at the same time living in a body is what's important, I think, to feminist existentialists.
0: Yeah, the woe man. Yeah.
1: The The
2: woe man.
1: man. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, how do you define objectification theory? And where did it originate? Also with Simone de Beauvoir?
2: Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, my good friend in graduate school, Barbara Fredrickson, and I were doing some thinking around the fact that at the time in the late 80s and early 90s, feminist psychology was very much focused on the question of voice. And who's allowed to sort of have a voice? People like Carol Gilligan and Nancy Chotaro were doing a lot of interesting work on this idea of the different ways that males and females reason morally, cognitive gender differences. And we were sort of thinking about how disembodied all that work was, how little of that work paid attention to the fact that, as I have just said, Simone de Beauvoir and our other favorite feminist theorists were very concerned about living in the body. I also happened to have, in my final years at Smith College as an undergrad, I was taking an art history course and I came across a little volume by an art historian named John Berger where he, uh, he has a chapter in this book and it was one of those accidental finds in the library. You know, you're looking for something and then you end up looking at the thing next to that thing. Um, and it really positively blew my mind because John Berger makes this fascinating argument about the notion of the nude in Western art and the subject object othering of the female feminized body in Western art, and then now in contemporary advertising and on and on. And so Barb and I sat down and we just, it's a lot like the stories that I hear from Tom and Sheldon and Jeff about the beginnings of terror management theory, just sort of conversations where you're thinking our field is missing something. And then we literally passed the keyboard back and forth and wrote a theoretical article, which got rejected By many journals (laughs) where we wanted to argue and and we did, We, we finally got it published and we argued that sexual objectification, objectifying and otherizing the female body is a sort of chronic experience of girls and women in our culture that it's characterized by reducing girls and women to their bodies, thinking that their bodies sort of represent them. And then commodifying, having that body become commodified. And so we presented this theory and we argued that the first consequence of this problem is that girls and women will come to internalize that perspective on who they are, much as Simone de Beauvoir said, they will become other to them on their own selves. And we named that self-objectification And we invited psychologists to start to study this.
0: So I understand what you're saying in terms of that being chronic and women becoming commodified from a psychological viewpoint. Can you give us some practical examples in a young woman's life or, you know, growing up, what that means when they're being bombarded with pictures of Semi-nude women who are selling—they're selling auto parts. Right. It's just you know, it's a, uh, it's just incredible when you stop and really you know look at it, and you know you're saying, "I, I I'm i seeing half-naked women all day long,
2: all day long." But what all does it long. what
0: does it mean to a young woman growing up?
2: Yeah, yeah. Karen horny too, the great psychoanalyst, she once said something along the lines of our culture is saturated with heterosexuality and from this masculine point of view, from the male gaze point of view. And I guess, I think the thing that, that is important to recognize and that became clear for me after, after some time, after we had published this paper, maybe 10 years later, I got a call from the American Psychological Association, and I was asked to be on a task force on the sexualization of girls. And the APA will put together task forces if they feel as though there's some sort of pressing mental health concern. And so six of us were on this task force. And my role was really to talk about, well, we we argued in in our report that there are kind of three sources of sexualization and objectification. One is this cultural thing that you're talking about, Steve. So you look around and as I said, the culture's saturated with presentations of women's bodies and body parts. There's sort of dismemberment all over the place, right? As, as a way of kind of selling stuff. So there's the cultural contribution. Then there's this interpersonal contribution where we the highest compliment we give to a very tiny girl is that she looks so pretty. You oh, so you're
0: pretty. not kidding. You're not kidding. You that so My my granddaughter's three, and she is pretty. Yes. But it was the women who come in and say, oh, she's so pretty. Yes. I, I was asking my son this. He says, yeah, the men, men don't stop me on the street and say, oh, she's pretty. But women do. Mm-hmm. And sure. I said, are we teaching her objectification in this? To be Absolutely. constantly told you're pretty?
2: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of the research that Carol Dweck has done about the problems with labeling children smart, right? So we, we've long known of the problems of labeling children, you know, dumb, and we avoid that at all costs. But then we became obsessed with this idea that some children are gifted and they're very smart. And her argument is that you develop when you repeatedly tell a child that he or she is smart, You develop in that child this kind of fixed mindset, and then they get very, very anxious around the loss of that potential label, right? So you tell them that they're smart. They end up opting for less challenging things to do in school. Why? Because they want to retain the smart label. And really, this ends up being very demotivating to label a child smart. Well, right now I'm trying and part of my work when I talk to parents and, you know, I go to school districts and things is to talk about the problems with pretty, which is a very, very similar kind of fixed label that we begin to attach to a young girl. And then, oh, my God, she's going to have to do everything in her power to retain. Right. And then you think about the loss of time and cognitive resources and energy that could be directed elsewhere that's now going to have to be invested in keeping people telling you that you're pretty. So (laughs) and in steps, in steps, you know, a huge consumer capitalist conglomeration to provide you with the products and the makeup and the surgery and the exercise to keep your body project going, right? So yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the interpersonal contribution. And then the part that's so fascinating to me, of course, is the intrapersonal contribution, the enthusiastic participation on the part of young girls themselves in the self-objectifying body project. And why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be? Look Absolutely. around you. Everyone... All the Kardashians and all the, you know, whoever's who are getting all the goods are the prettiest. So, yeah, you're going to go for it.
1: Yeah, we're an amazing. This is an amazing society we're living in. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah. So, Tomián, Ann, you worked with our friend uh, Jamie Goldenberg on several articles related to TMT, Terror Management Theory. Yep. And um, your ears should have been burning this morning because I texted her to tell her that we had going to have the great pleasure of interviewing you today. And this is what she wrote. Awesome. Tomi Ann is the best. She's a great speaker and one of my favorite people in the world. Yay for my Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing! I told her her RBG was in your uh, PowerPoint. Yes, and I and I felt very smart that I recognized it immediately. I'll, ha- <laughs> I'll have you know because it's always all about me. And then she says, uh, "Yep, I'm good." And she finished with, "It's my birthday it today.
0: Is. It's her birthday." So
1: you, I mean, what could be? Th- so I promised her <laughs> that she would get a birthday shout out yes. on our podcast since one, we're- okay, three. Two, one. one. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday day, Jamie! Jamie. <laughs> there we go. Now we have fulfilled my promise.
2: Absolutely.
1: Cool. So we interviewed her uh, years ago when she was just beginning her career. Yeah. And my question is how do you and she combine terror management theory and objectification theory in your understanding of feminist existentialism?
2: Yes. Great question. Well, You know, as I was going trucking along doing this work and Jamie came here to Colorado Springs to do a postdoc with Tom Pazinski and Tom said, I have this new postdoc. I think the two of you would get along gangbusters. I was like, yay. So I remember, again, you know, the best ideas come when you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're just talking with somebody who's also interested and smart and and we began to think about how fascinating it was that when you're engaged in this body project one of the things you're really obliged to do is to conceal and cover up and sort of fake that you don't actually have a creaturely body right that what you have is a sanitized denuded deodorized slender big-breasted narrow-hipped idealized body, right? And you if someone were to say something like, does Beyonce poop? Everybody, <laughs> you know, wait, no, right. Of course. Like obviously Beyonce does not poop, right? Oh. No. A, a I, sculpture I didn't, cannot poop.
1: I don't think any women pooped. <laughs> See? There you go. That's what so, I was taught.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we began to think about the ways in which TMT and the lengths we go to sort of deny our our mortality. And Jamie's burgeoning work at the time that one of the ways we deny our mortality is to really separate ourselves from our body's animal processes. And we do all those crazy things like we say, make love instead of have sex. And we Almost every religious institution codifies how you're allowed to, and not allowed to have that sex and et cetera, et cetera. And the feminist in me said, Well, isn't it fascinating that women's bodies do more stuff? Like we got the pee and the poop in common. You know, we've got the orgasm in common, yes um but then we've got lactation, and menstruation and pregnancy and like what
1: ew right
2: <laughs> totally <laughs> ew so it occurred to us that there was something really special here and we started to think about how on the one hand perhaps one of the functions of objectification in the sense of you know John Berger saying the nude in Western art is always a reclining woman, that that one function of this is to sort of pedestalize and to idealize women's non-creaturely bodies, right? Mm. Wow. And then uh, it sort of flips that, that's kind of a benevolent sexism maybe in a way. It's, oh, I, I've adorned the, my mud flaps as of my truck with a a reclining woman, and I love women. I just, I love their bodies. They're so beautiful. And then on the flip side of that, of course, is the derision and the shame and the disgust associated with the revelation of any of these more creaturely and yet still feminized functions. And how ironic, because they function, of course, about life, right? Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> wow.
2: Wow. Yeah. How weird!
0: And half <laughs> the population of the world. I mean, we just kind of pretend that that they don't have periods. Right. But we and we, s- we have sanitary napkins
2: yes, to take care yes, of them. Yes. Yes. There's nothing unsanitary about a period, but apparently yeah. words like sanitation and hygiene.
1: Yeah. Are, yeah. Hygiene. Are
2: very. And they quick.
1: call them men are very clear in calling them feminine hygiene products. Yeah, yeah isn't
2: that fascinating yeah
1: Do we are are there any masculine hygiene products i don't I, think so i mean
2: i none come to mind like, jock itch <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> jock
1: that's powder
0: that's the powder. other yeah, there are probably some
2: but of yeah. course it's called jock itch <laughs> yeah right it's only for jocks <laughs> right you know? right no
1: as
0: right su- as opposed to napkins yes for women right. Right. A what nap, what, what, <laughs> napkin i you know you got to have to stop and think about it. especially when you're like 20 some years old and your wife sends you to the store to get napkin. Sanitary you go oh my napkin. god what <laughs>
2: will paper towels work? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. oh my god <sighs> right. so yeah yeah so
0: you use some terms disgust or anger when you talk about observers shame or abjection In women themselves. And I love this threatening when talking about reminders of women's creaturely bodies. Could you elaborate on some of those for us, especially threatening? I love that.
2: Yeah, I, I think the word threat, of course, is, I think it's definitely, it appears a lot in Jamie's work, the idea of the sort of threat of the creaturely body. And it's psychic threat, right? We're not talking about a gun. But yet the ironies are just so, when you stop and think about the fact that, I don't know, you can go to a bar for wet t-shirt night, but I'm sure that if a woman were to breastfeed her baby in that bar, she would be be escorted out, right? And so it's fascinating that why should... A breastfeeding woman be a problem for anyone. And so what is the threat here? What is the threat? The threat is something like the, the box and the order, the orderliness of gender roles around subject object are now being somehow are now being somehow, I not I can't use the word threat in a definition of threat. Um, <laughs> they're being somehow upended. We're also being confronted with the fact that it turns out breasts aren't for men. They're for babies. Okay. That's a problem. So I I, I think the threat is something very, very terror management-y. It's something along the lines of do not remind me, observer, that I live in a body that poops and pees and Uh, And and
1: and and nurses a baby and nurses a baby,
0: right? But it reminds you of death. It reminds you of your, your inevitable death because you don't want to think of the love of your life as being a creature. Mm
2: -hmm. Unless of
0: course it's a cat or a dog, which is a different story. But, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, no, no, this, if I'm in love with a creature and therefore I'm a creature and creatures are temporary, yeah. I'm going to die. And so yeah. your death anxiety defense is lowered at that point.
2: Absolutely. And Mark Landau, some of his earlier work, I don't know if you know his work, but he definitely did some really interesting studies as a grad student and the postdoc with Tom, where he talked about the, if you think about it, there are phrases like the phrase in French for an orgasm, if a man has the orgasm, is the petit mort, the little death. Yeah, no. the idea, yeah, the idea yeah. is yeah to to connect in in a sexual way with something that is creaturely means I'm dead. <laughs> like right. I uh-oh now I'm reminded, right? I'm not I'm not engaging with an idealized object of beauty. I'm actually exchanging fluids with a creature.
1: Right.
2: right. And ah,
0: as part of as part of a biological imperative sure. which is which is has nothing to do with romantic love Shakespeare poetry or any you know or, or any of the songs on the radio well most of the songs anyway uh you know it's 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 creaturely it's,
2: it's absolutely creaturely and part of the creatureliness we now know of course is oxytocin there are all kinds of hormones that get released in this interaction that that do make us feel feelings like love and attachment and and that keep us attached to our it keeps a breastfeeding mom attached to her baby it keeps sex partners attached to one another and so yeah this biological imperative carries with it some really interesting hormones that are also i don't know about something as vague as love in the sense that these are hormones that attach us to one another they form bonds that keep us around, keep us coming back.
0: But where does the disgust come from? Then? Disgust and anger in yeah. the observers.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in my work with so Jamie and I and one of my students and Tom did a study where we we had this setup where we brought in naive participants and they thought, okay. They're about to do a task with another naive participant. And so before we assign you to this task, you're going to meet your, the other naive participant and da-da-da-da. Okay. So it turns out the other participant was our confederate. And she reaches into her backpack and she fumbles out either a hair barrette or a wrapped tampon. And what we found was that these participants who were then about to now go in and do the task, which ended up being bogus and never happened, we sent them to another room. We see how far away they sit from other participants, and then we asked them a bunch of questions about how they rate their anticipated competence and likability of their of their partner. Um, and sure enough, we found that participants sat further away from Cassie when she dropped the tampon than when she dropped the hair clip, an equally feminine object, and that they rated her competence as lower if she um, had dropped the tampon than if she dropped the hair clip. And so sitting further away from someone is, it's associated with the action tendency that goes along with the emotion of disgust. When we're disgusted by something, we put distance between ourselves and that thing. And we also just know from a lot of sociological work around periods that when menstrual status is revealed, people respond with, oh, my God, like you've got a stain on your pants. Ah, right. Um, All of the words you've just been using, sanitation and hygiene are the kinds of words that we use around things that are otherwise contaminating and disgusting.
1: Right? I've never what? seen a commercial for any of these products when the actress wasn't wearing white pants. White, white, white True. is pure. That's a good point. White is pure.
0: They're never wearing red pants, are they? No, no brown. that would be, that would yeah. be the
1: smart thing to do, wouldn't it? <laughs> While we're talking about the, both disgust and tampons, I noticed in your uh, PowerPoint that one of the, uh, Sort of TMT activities was asking someone to put a unused tampon to their lips. Yes, and I noticed that that research was done by two persons, one of which was named Height. Would that have been Jonathan Height, who we're really yeah, that's John. We're we're big fans of he. I just love I just love him and his work.
2: Yeah, that's John Height, and that was his early work as a grad student with Paul Rosen. And I think he has those sort of five moral domains. Right. And that purity domain of his in moral reasoning, I think is really grounded in that early work he did on disgust reactions. And John and I, we we get in arguments a lot because he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily want to take a feminist. He's sort of coming up with, I think, a very, very powerful kind of universalist set of themes around how human beings. Organize their moral reasoning. But I'm always like, yeah, a couple of these domains just work differently in respect to feminine embodied experience. And that purity domain is a real challenge for living in the female body. It's it's a challenge.
0: But then you also use the term shame in terms Mm -hmm. of the women themselves.
2: Yes, yes, of course. So I think what happens, of course, is that around these body functions, around menstruation and lactation, for example, the culture has come up with a bunch of kind of codified ways, just like we have codifications around the kind of sex you can and cannot have. There's the way you're supposed to manage this. It's your own private affair. You can go in a public restroom and they will provide you with soap. And toilet seat covers and paper towels and toilet paper, but you will not be provided with any kind of menstrual product. That is your private business. You are morally obliged to take care of it. And if anybody is a witness to your failure, you should be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed. And of course, you are. I've done some consulting work with Cotex, where I write blogs to sort of help young girls who are first beginning their periods to try to work on really challenging and facing that shame and recognizing that the shame has nothing to do with who you are or what an amazing thing your body is doing when it's having a period and everything to do with the culture's, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it again, fear of you. Threat that you are a reminder that we are all Animals, right? I mean, we're walking around pretending we're not.
1: <laughs> wow! So, so periods are really TMT things because they've got a lot of.
2: To me, absolutely, and uh, so I, I am in love with periods, and I love studying periods, and I, I spent some time as the president of the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. Yes, there is such a society. Wow. Um, and yeah, uh, so there, there's a lot going on, a lot going on with menstruation. And right now, as I'm in menopause, I'm starting to see sort of other end of, of things too. And again, now what happens is when you're young and you're reproductively viable and you're having periods, you're sort of hyper visible, right? Now you've become a menopausal woman and you're invisible it's remarkable. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. And I think what begins to happen for a lot of women at that end of life is you're now faced with a choice. Am I going to invest in continuing to maintain my visibility? Am I going to get my Botox? Am I going to now shift my purchasing power to the skin creams and the, this and the, that Or am I going to like, I don't know, sort of work with this new invisibility and start to recognize that there's a lot I can accomplish now that the chronic sexual objectification and the smile, honey, you look so much better when you smile, and the da 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 da. Now that that's off the table, wow, there are maybe some things I could do with this relative invisibility. And I think. I just see so many women my age grappling with that choice point. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to invest in staying in the game? Or am I going to try to figure out what I can do under the radar now?
0: My homosexual male friends talk about the same thing Uh of being sexually invisible now. They reach a certain age. And in the gay world, youth and beauty And for men, sometimes muscles, you know, they're all all pumped up in the gym or or whatever. But you get a certain age, and now you're sexually invisible.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do think that the greatest philosopher on this question of objectification, to my thinking, of course, is Martha Nussbaum, who wrote a piece on the qualities of objectification back, gosh, in the late 90s. And she has... A really interesting section in that piece where she talks about whether or not, for example, she gives this amazing example. I love it. If you are using your lover's tummy as a pillow, are you instrumentalizing your lover? Are you objectifying, right? Because to treat someone's body as though it's an instrument is one of the criteria for her of objectification. So she really, as a philosopher can and only can, she really grapples with this idea. If I'm lying on my lover's tummy and I'm using his or her tummy as a pillow, am I objectifying my lover? And she ends up saying in matters of objectification, consent is everything, of course, right? And so I was thinking about your example of your aging gay friends And how much fun toying with under safe consensual context, toying with oneself as the object of the sexualized gaze can be, right? And I hear in your friend's lamentations, right? That it's like, I can't play that anymore. It doesn't doesn't go off anymore, right? I can't. And so I never want to be misunderstood in my work as someone saying that self-objectification and, and the treatment of our sex partners as the objects of our gaze and admiration is always a bad thing. Of course it isn't. Because as Nussbaum says, in, in these matters, consent is sort of everything. So, yeah.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Tomi Ann Roberts about feminist existentialism, objectification theory, and several related psychological issues. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation with psychologist Tommy Ann Roberts about feminist existentialism, objectification theory, and related psychological issues.
1: So, Tomian, Ann, you've written about bringing feminist existential psychological science outside the academy and into the courtroom to advance the cause of gender justice. You were called as an expert witness in a few legal challenges to existing city ordinances. And here are quotes from a few ordinances that you point to. The first one is, Free the Nipple versus the City of Fort Collins, Colorado. And toplessness ordinance, no female who is 10 years of age or older shall knowingly appear in any public place with her breast exposed below the top of the air A nipple while located in public or on private property if the person can be viewed. And then also Edge versus City of Everett, Washington, citywide ordinance and dress code ordinance for drive-through coffee stands prohibits exposing more than one half of the part of the female breast located below the top of the areola. What was your testimony and deposition in these court cases?
2: Yeah, boy, this has been wild, right? I want to start by saying that I think that there are some ironies here, of course. When I tell my friends I'm testifying on on behalf of these bikini baristas who work in Washington state, there are a lot of these drive through coffee stands and you can be served your coffee along with a serving of an objectified woman because she's wearing a barely there bikini. And these stands are known, you know, all through the state of Washington, bikini barista stands. And so not only do you have the sanctioned right to purchase a coffee, you have the sanctioned right to also kind of consume these women's bodies. And so, on why on earth would I, author of objectification theory, be defending these women? And I think what is fascinating here to me, and the reason why I have very enthusiastically participated in these toplessness ordinance um, overhauls, is the notion that the female breast, getting back to what we were talking about before the break, the female breast in its creaturely way is somehow Disorderly, right? It is threatening. It is a problem for us. We can watch the Victoria's Secret fashion show on primetime TV and the pillows of cleavage are there with the teddy bears and the whatever. But the nipple, the female nipple, is disorderly, right? It's a problem. And so my participation in these two cases has been to try to really reveal the hypocrisy that underlies these toplessness ordinances. So, for example, let me start with the city of Fort Collins. Why on earth does a 10-year-old girl have to cover her top? I mean, it's just, it's astonishing to me. I spent a good deal of my childhood in Finland. My mother is uh, immigrated from Finland in the 60s. Um, And her whole entire family and my whole entire family is there in Finland. So I spent a lot of my childhood summers in Finland. And there's a real difference in Finland between naked and nude. Naked means you are in the sauna or you're a child who's on a hot day or you've taken your clothes off in order to get in the shower, right? Or whatever. Nude means you are seeking... The eyes of others on your body, right? Nude means you are a sight to behold. You want to be witnessed in a state of relative undress, right? But I don't think Americans really get the difference between that. And so for No, for, nude
0: a nude beach is right? not it should be a naked beach.
2: It should be a naked beach. Because you be don't n- go
0: to a nude beach, I guess I don't think you go to a nude beach to show off your body.
2: Yes. So I've had a hard time explaining to parents, for example, that putting a bikini top on a four-year-old sexualizes her. To cover a part is to sexualize it. To say you may not look under here is to imply that there is something problematic underneath. And right? It's quite odd. So there are some ironies there about covering up and what covering up means, right? And when we oblige a 10-year-old female to cover up an area of the body that we do not oblige a 10-year-old male to cover up, and there's no distinct difference between those areas of the body, then I've really got a problem. And so I, I spent some of my time in the work on the Free the Nipple case. In this case, what we had were women who were protesting the toplessness ordinance by going topless. And there is a big movement worldwide. This is a feminist organization known as FEMEN, F-E-M-E-N. They're less active here in the States than they are in South America and in Europe, where women who are part of FEMEN protest all manner of political injustice by going topless. And so they paint their protests on their topless bodies. And what do they get arrested for? Their disorderly conduct, of course, is the fact that they've bared their breasts. And so my testimony in these cases was really kind of focused on this arbitrary distinction, as I'm saying, between the sexualized versus the creaturely breast. Do I think bikini baristas are living their best life serving coffee in a bikini? No, <laughs> right? Uh, do I wish they had other ways of making tips? Yes. But do I think it's okay for the cities to shut them down? No, right? This is something that I've been looking, history of brothels is fascinating. Women owned brothels do a bang up business. And as soon as, you know, they start doing well out here in the Wild West, where I live, um, you start to see the sheriff coming in and sort of shutting this down. So and then you get brothels that are owned by Johns, and the whole thing changes. so if like if men are sort of at the helm of controlling the sexualized women's body, then that's fine. And these bikini barista stands are all women-owned. These are working class women covered in tattoos, young single moms, and they're they're working what they've got. Now, one of the things that was so, crazy was I really had an exhausting deposition in the bikini barista case. And the lawyer for the city of Everett, Washington was just bringing all my own work at me against me in a very, very interesting, almost paternalistic way, sort of saying your work Tomian, shows that this self-sexualizing is very harmful for them. Right. So, this is a dangerous job. I'm like, well, logging is a dangerous job. Like, yeah, I mean, I really don't think the city of Everett is worried that these ladies are suffering the shame of self sexualization, but that was what was brought to bear. It was very hard. The justifications for most of these ordinances are things like exposure of the female breast and only the female breast corrupts minors. Creaturely female breast exposure unleashes male sexual violence. And then also one of my favorites, and I shouldn't be laughing, but it was just so strange to me, was that some of the cities that are protesting these bikini baristas are saying that the bikini stands reduce their aesthetic property values. (laughs) So we don't want to see these these working class young women in our neighborhood. I mean, it's, I mean, really, it's, it's fascinating. It's I like wonder, in the neighborhood.
0: I wonder if they had the same reaction to Hooters is Hooters still around. Is that still a thing? I don't even know. But- of
2: course Hooters is still around now. Oh. This is very interesting and I'm glad you brought it up Steve, because part of my expert report for the bikini barista stand was to point out that 30 miles South, You can pay, I don't know, upwards of $200 for a ticket to a Seattle Seahawks game where you can watch the Seagal's cheerleaders with the busty, I mean, just doing their sexualized pom-pom dance. Or you can spend $3.25. So really, this is a very classist ordinance. It's quite remarkable. Hooters, of course, the price point is higher than the bikini stand. Um, and there's Hooters in the nearby area. There's also there's all sorts of restaurants, by the way. That's what they're called, that have popped up all around the country. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Hooters I never was the heard first
0: restaurant. Restaurants. Great, restaurants. oh my god! That.
2: Hooters was the first restaurant, and it's very quaint now compared to. Uh, let's see. There's one called Twin Peaks, <laughs> um, which is sort of mountain themed, yeah. uh, and there's one called the Tilted Kilt where they wear, you know, a tight bikini plaid, because it's a Scottish theme restaurants. Yeah.
0: So wow. yeah. Now talking about the, the topless ordinance, you quoted Judge R. Brooke Jackson's decision. Yeah. In the US District Court of Colorado. Well, yeah. Would you tell us what did Judge Jackson say?
2: He, oh my gosh, I was just I am so honored. I heard from Andy McNulty, who was the lead attorney in this, and my testimony in Free the Nipple v. Fort Collins was completely pro bono. I I didn't know what I was doing. But this district court judge, Jackson, really took my testimony very seriously. His opinion quoted me extensively, and Andy McNulty told me that I was sort of key in them winning the case. And I'm, I'm just so proud of it. But if you don't mind, I will read what he wrote. And yeah, we'd love he, said, it.
1: Yeah. he
2: said, based on the present record and Dr. Roberts' testimony, I find that the ordinance discriminates against women. It is based upon ipse dixit, which of course is Latin for something is true because we say it's true. In this case, the female breast is a sex object Because we say so. That is, he wrote, the naked female breast is seen as disorderly or dangerous because society, from Renaissance paintings to Victoria's Secret commercials, has conflated female breasts with genitalia and stereotyped them as such. And here's the kicker, man, I love this line. The irony is that by forcing women to cover up their bodies, society has made naked women's breasts something to see.
0: That's nice. A, yeah, I didn't know that judge R Brooke Jackson was, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to look it up, but I didn't get to, but it was a man.
2: Yeah. Okay. yeah. Good, good I, for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a, a seasoned, I'd say certainly late sixties, early seventies, white male judge, district judge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of us. Yeah. Today. <laughs> what yep. So, the decision was appealed. Is that right? Yes. And then yes. what did the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals say in its decision?
2: Well, this was so cool. So we won in district court, as I just said, and, and that was Brooke Jackson's um, opinion. And then the city appealed, of course. And I got the word that the city appealed. And I was just, oh, I, I, I told Andy, oh, I'm so disappointed. And I remember Andy wrote to me and he said, no, this is really exciting. It means we're going to the 10th circuit. And the 10th circuit, I've written down here, the 10th circuit actually includes Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming. And we won. We won. So the 10th Circuit ruled that a ban on voluntary toplessness is unconstitutional. And that is just pretty huge. I'm I'm I was blown away.
0: Yeah, that's incredible and considering that part of the
1: country. Yeah. It,
2: yes, yes.
1: Wow. And and you it, helped and you helped do that. Yeah.
2: I I did and I'm I'm just as pleased as punch about it. There was a case before the Fort Collins free the nipple women started agitating. There was a case in Salt Lake City, which is of course also in the 10th circuit, where a woman was arrested for Did you hear about this? No. Yeah. No, oh no, my gosh. See. This woman was very hot in the garage. She and her husband were moving furniture. It was a boiling hot day in Salt Lake City. Her husband took his shirt off. She took her shirt off. His kids, they were her stepkids, saw her. She was written up by child social services for endangering minors, for her own stepchildren seeing her without a top on in her own house.
0: Wow, the way the ordinance reads, if you're in your own bathroom, that's right, but you left the blind open and somebody walks by, or a peeping tom. That know, is
2: exactly right. At,
0: you're you've committed, or at least you've violated the ordinance. You could yes, be you arrested, have. I
1: suppose. For, yes,
2: you have, and this is what happened to this woman was arrested. Unbelievable. Yep. That
1: stuck out to me earlier when you were saying it could happen on your own property. Property being a key word in this country. But if someone from, from outside your property can see you, then you're guilty.
2: That's yeah. right. That's right. So what actually is the property here? The house or the woman's body?
1: I guess Ooh. it's the woman's body. I mean, it's like, <laughs> like oh, my oh, my God. Wow. Would you tell us about two court cases, Amador V. Baca and Henry V. Hewlett. And how did they turn out?
2: Yeah. So, interestingly, the two cases we've just talked about are sort of about the disorderliness of the creaturely breast. And these two cases, Amador V. Baca and Henry V. Hewlett, are about something quite different, but still very much relevant to this, to what we're talking about today. And in this case, what we have are examples of sort of abject degradation of incarcerated women around menstruation. And so quite a number of years ago now, I received a phone call from a civil rights lawyer in Los Angeles. And she said to me, it was just wild. She said, I'm looking for an expert on menstruation and objectification. And I, you know, I found you in ProfNet. And we're, we're working to help with women who are in the LA County jail. Okay. We're not talking prison. We're talking writing bad checks and getting involved with a boyfriend who's probably dealing drugs. I don't know, something like that. So we're talking jail. And she said, these are inmates who are subjected to this strip and body cavity search on mass. Whenever they have to go for a, you know, maybe it's a doctor's appointment or a court hearing. Then when they return to the jail they're brought into a bus depot and between 20 and 60 women at a time are subjected to a full strip and body cavity search in full view of one another because of course they could be i guess bringing contraband in in their vaginas and so female deputies monitor this strip and body cavity search but part of what happens is that the women not only have to you know remove all their clothes and everything they have to bend over, spread their labia, spread their buttocks. But menstruating women have to remove soiled menstrual products and stand there, many bleeding down their lugs until the procedure is over, and then maybe they'll be given a replacement product. And Yikes. I am on the phone with this lawyer, and I said, you need an expert to say what? <laughs> I, I, what are you talking about? Okay. So yes, in fact, they need an expert. The judge in this case was alleged to have said that he didn't think probably this strip and body cavity search was any different than the kind of thing that women probably do in the spa or the locker room. Wow. Apparently, they I guess we pull our tampons out and swing them around and, and bleed down our legs in front of one another. What I think was so astonishing was the lack of recognition that the, the self-objectification and the project of keeping yourself from the shame that's going to come with the revelation of menstrual status means women don't talk to women about this. It's not just that we're keeping this from y'all. We are keeping this from each other. We must, right? We must. And so, yeah, I, I ended up joining as an expert on, on this case, And part of my testimony, of course, was to argue that menstruation, as we've talked about, is associated with disgust and contamination. Also, revelation of menstrual status on the part of women themselves gives them terrible feelings of shame and that this constituted a kind of cruel and unusual punishment. And then as I was still involved with that case, I also found out about Henry V Hewlett and I was an amica in that case, and in that case you had a similar situation. It was in a prison. The inmates were rounded up, and in that case, oh my God, the strip and body cavity search was done as a kind of exercise, a training exercise for the deputies. This is how you do it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yikes! Yeah. The the dehumanization. The forget objectification. It's the dehumanization. Uh, but I got to tell you that that's, that is, I had to get fingerprinted for a, a volunteer work and the state trooper treated me like a criminal. I and mean, treated everybody, all the other people, you know, who were getting fingerprinted by law who had to do this, you know, but, but he figures, you know, anybody getting fingerprints is obviously a criminal. I mean, that's the way they treat us. It's that's dehumanizing. Right. It's just, you know, that's the way it is. That's uh, exactly
2: right. And when you think about, I'm sure that, As you had the fingerprinting done, they were probably quite aggressive with your fingers. Oh yeah, these are an object's fingers; they don't have the same amount of feeling, (laughs) right, as a subject's fingers would have. And now imagine—it's the very most private, very most abjected part of your body, right? Like, right. And so many of these women, many of the inmates' testimonies were. I mean, it was the worst experience of their entire life that they felt that they had essentially been sexually assaulted. Yeah. It was hard because my expert report could not include any of the testimony of the inmates. I just had to work with my own, you know, research and stuff. But yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you mind we get a little personal in this discussion? I heard you describe an encounter with Harvey Weinstein, 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 in an interview on NPR at the beginning of the Me Too movement. Would you tell us about that? How do you know Mr. Weinstein and what happened?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, so when I was in college, I was pursuing a theater major and I went to, I attended Smith College. And the summer between my junior and senior year of college, a bunch of us who were sort of interested in theater, advertising, media and things, several friends from Amherst and from Smith. We spent the summer in New York and we sort of tried our hand at getting, you know, getting an agent. My boyfriend at the time got a internship with David Letterman. And so we were living in New York. I was waiting tables to earn money. And I met these two guys. It was 1984. I met two guys named Bob and Harvey Weinstein working in a restaurant where a lot of off-Broadway folks would go. I remember Ah. Swoosie Kurtz would go there and John Voight and stuff. And so I meet these two guys and they're, you know, new producers in town and they're, they're bringing a lot of foreign films. They've got this new company, they're calling it Miramax. Yeah. And they're thinking about starting to produce and direct some of their own things. I mean. We now know these names as huge, but in 1984, they were not. And long story short, you know, I, uh, wow, I'm interested in acting. And so I was considered, or or so I thought, for a part in a movie that was actually made. Uh, It's very hard to find. I went straight to video. It's called Playing for Keeps. And for the rest of the summer, I had sort of scripts sent to me by courier and I would look at it. And, you know, Harvey and Bob came to the restaurant a lot. It was very easy for everyone to see who the nice brother was. And it was Bob, by the way. But Harvey, you know, looking back, I'm like, nice, really? Harvey invited me to what I thought was going to be a party for people that were involved in this film. And, you know, you've heard the story a million times now. I arrived at his apartment. Thinking back, I am sure it was an apartment, not a hotel room. I know most of the stories in later years were always hotel rooms. And there was no party. I got called, you know, I heard Harvey call me down the hall. Um, And I, it was relatively dark. And it was one of those shotgun style New York apartments. And I went down the hall and there he was naked in the bathtub. And, you know, I was, I was, you know how there's fight, flee and freeze. I was in freeze. So, (laughs) you know, I'm 20 years old and I'm just like, okay. And I'm flooded. I'm thinking, okay, this is how it goes. You reap what you sow, Tomian. This is what it's going to be. And he is very, he's sort of pleading with me. Later reports, I heard many, many Harvey victims talk about how he would he would do this pleading thing. And that's what he did. You know, there's going to be a topless scene in the movie. And Tomi, if you can't take off your top in front of me, then it's going to be really hard for you to play the part and come on in this bathtub and blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't know how. I talked my way out of that, but I did. It was one of these like, don't poke the bear sorts of moments. And I, I just sort of politely backed my way out. I remember I asked a maid or somebody to let me out and she did. And two days later I went for the reading and I got there and the casting agent said to me, you know, you're not getting this part, right?
0: You're not getting anywhere. (laughs) You're done.
2: Yeah. So this was not, the sort of story that I've told too many people. I mean, you know, I when I, I really essentially sort of tossed my acting ambitions in the wastebasket. I came back to Smith. I ended up majoring in psychology. I ended up going to grad school. I ended up studying this stuff. I mean, it's pretty nutty. I think our autobiographies—they are not written going forward, right? They're written going back. And so now I find myself looking back and going, "Huh, that's interesting. That that's what I." found fascinating and what I wanted to study. In 2017, I came up, uh, I had taught class, I came from downstairs in my building to my office, I looked at the New York Times, and I saw this article about Ashley Judd. And it was written by Jody Cantor and Megan Tohey. And they were talking about Harvey Weinstein doing this thing in a shower. And I was like, Oh, my God, it was so uncanny how alike my story it was. I just, I couldn't believe it. So on a whim, I wrote an email to Jody Cantor and Megan Tohi. And I, I, I literally just sort of told my story. I said, you know, I'm not an actress. I'm a psychology professor. I've never had the opportunity to tell someone this who would. Get it. Yeah. Or for, for whom it was a. Appropriate? I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. Once in a while, I'd be, I'd, I don't know, I'd be at an Oscars party. You know, you go to an Academy Awards party at a friend's house and there'd come Harvey Weinstein and I'd be like, hey, y'all, you know, the casting couch is real and everybody would just laugh and eat their pizza. And, I'd, you know, and I got a call the next day from Jodie Cantor and she said, you have the dubious honor of being the old the first story we have. Like, 1984 was the, like, earliest story.
1: Wow. Wow. The Me Too movement. You're the first Me Too?
0: Yeah, (laughs) Me Too. It's so aptly named, isn't it? It's perfect. Yeah, Yeah. Me Too.
2: Right. And I hadn't heard that phrase. But, yeah, reading this thing about Ashley Judd, I'm like, Me Too with Ashley Judd? What? And that's (laughs) my first thought was like, oh, my God, that's exactly what he did with Me it involved a bathroom, you know, in her case, it was a shower. In my case, it was a bathtub. And then all these stories start to come out.
1: Wow. We also heard a rumor that the late Rush Limbaugh once described you as one of the Feminazis. Yes. What did he mean by that term?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, standing there in the threshold of Harvey's bathroom and realizing like, wow, I am like the only thing I have to contribute here is my sexualized body. That's what this is about. It just was such a moment, you know? And fast forward to some of the first studies that um, we did after we published Objectification Theory, the very first study we did, where I'm a psych scientist, you sit around, you try to figure out how are you going to operationalize, as you've talked to Tom and Jeff and Sheldon. How do you get people to think about their own mortality but not really think about it? Right. And so they have their mortality salience inductions. And we had to be like, how can we get people to feel self objectification without them knowing it? You know, like what, what, and then also as feminists, like how are we going to do it in an ethical way? Like we're not going to set up some lab where we're having dudes give women the once up and down and we thought it through. And then I remember I had this, I thought, you know, I've had the experience of standing all alone in a dressing room and feeling a little like I felt in the threshold of Harvey Weinstein's bathroom where I'm like, I'm trying on swimwear or a bra or something. And even though I'm alone in the dressing room, I feel like, oh my God, you know, I don't meet the standards of the idealized here I am trying to stuff myself in something. And, And I'm confronted with my objectified body in the mirror, and it doesn't quite cut it, right? So that's what we decided to do. So we contrived an experiment where we had undergraduates believe that they were part of a consumer decision-making study. And they came into the lab, and one by one, you know, oh, first, smell these different fragrances. Okay, now we're going to have you try on a garment of clothing. And individually, male and female college students, they go in a dressing room and they're instructed to try on either a swimsuit or a sweater. And then we say, sometimes it takes some time to get used to a garment. So while you're waiting, and then we're going to ask you your feelings about this garment, while you're waiting, could you please do some math problems for the math department? Anyway, so what we found, of course, was that in... Women, no matter their body mass index, who were standing alone in a swimsuit, performed significantly worse on these math problems than women standing alone in a sweater. And there was absolutely no difference for men. So, our argument there was that this self objectification, this feeling of of objectification, just like standing in that threshold of Harvey's bathroom, is flooding. It's this flooding experience of the sort of of being confronted with this flawed sexualized body, right? And it leaves you with relatively few cognitive resources left. And so that's why the women in the swimsuits, we said, perform more poorly in math and why the project of self-objectifying and constantly checking their hair and all this kind of stuff is taking up cognitive resources that you would otherwise have to do other things. And yeah, Rush Limbaugh got a hold of our study and he did a whole radio program about the study. And he said that some feminazis, my colleague Barb Fredrickson and I, just proved why bimbos are dumb.
1: Whoa. Oh, man. <laughs> it sounds like him.
0: Oh, doesn't it? Jeez. Well, congratulations. You're I feel it's an honor. Wow, yeah. It is an honor. <laughs> So, Tomian, just in summary, how does de objectifying women help us all, men and women? How does it help us improve our enjoyment of life?
2: Yeah. Oh, what a lovely question. I think that we have a wonderful opportunity, I think, in our relations with one another to sort of co experience the flawed body right to sort of recognize that it's not what did somebody say once we don't have a soul we are a soul what we have is a body and what we're all dealing with is the sort of the confrontation of this body that we have with the world and the sort of unfairness i think is the ways in which Body comes to obscure the humanity of women. And when it does that, then I think it obliges men to sort of go along with it. And I feel as though that means that men are missing out on the opportunity to co-experience all these remarkable things that bodies do right? That it's not sort of just a thing to endure. It's a sort of, I don't know, wonderful, a wonderful part of existence. Existence is the existence that we have in this flawed body. And the amount of work we do to sort of deny that, I think, leaves us missing out on All sorts of stuff to share, all sorts of ways to be like, wow, that's how it feels for you? Wild, right? That doesn't feel that way for me. It feels this way. Or I don't know, that's what you have to do. That's how it is experienced by you. How, how fascinating.
1: Tell me, are things improving for women and where's their hope? Yeah.
2: Oh, golly. I, I, you know, I, I am pretty bummed out, actually. I, I just feel as though misogyny is the, is the toughest nut to crack. And I, I think it's because, frankly, so much, we're talking about dividing the world in two. And so there's so much to gain by women themselves participating fully in the objectifying and self-sexualizing culture. But we now know from research that to the extent that you self-objectify, to the extent that you primarily view yourself as a sexualized object, you don't identify with feminism, you don't care about gender equity, you vote for Trump because you see that the way you're gonna get anywhere in the world is through associating with men, right? And the way you're going to be able to associate with them is by sort of leveraging your sexualized body. And to the extent that you're going to opt out of that, it's a huge ask. It's a huge ask. And so part of being in that frame of mind is to not see other women as your sister. They are your competitor. And so we don't, I feel quite hopeless about the movement ever finally taking hold because there is too much to gain by some women competing by leveraging that sexualized body with other women. So it it becomes very difficult to recognize the sisterhood that I think is required for true gender equality. So... I'm a little negative about that.
1: <laughs> Fascinating.
0: I fully understand what you're saying, Tommy, and and I, Ken and I, go through this all the time.
1: We're always looking for hope. That's why we we're ask always looking for hope. End. Yeah, and it's yeah. like
0: I'm getting when out when out, getting out when it's good. You know, I'm I'm gonna die. You know, before the the wheels come off the world kind of thing. But you know, yeah. you gotta you gotta
1: keep looking for hope. I don't know.
2: Yes, no, you you do, you do, and I and I feel bad that i was a little bit of a of a downer there no um, no
1: i don't not at I all don't, i think that's maybe the most important part of this absolutely right, because it's, awesome
2: how in the world are there women for trump like i don't understand <laughs> it it just uh, seems surely it. surely when it comes out that he is uh, happy about being a pussy grabber yeah. surely that's the end of it now right no no so
1: you got a little bump in the polls from that yes i,
0: I think the conservative mind you know i think about this a lot they say to themselves and to one another this is the world we're in Mm -hmm. this is not rainbows and unicorns this is the world and if you don't accept the world as it is as we experience it then you're kidding yourself and you're dangerous because if you're going to be in power or if you're going to be a voter you have to deal with the world as it is. And the liberal mind is, yes, but we can change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We want change. And the yeah. conservative mind says, no, you don't know what's going to happen if you change it. Right. We, we might agree with you that we're being objectified, but that's the world. And Absolutely. actually, we're better off than Saudi Arabia in this regard. So
2: yes. And you, I'm sure maybe you're familiar with this work on system justification. So many times we see that the individuals who are part of a system who have the least to gain from it are often the most in favor of it, right? Because they think, if I justify this system, then that enables me to justify all the efforts I've done to be acceptable within it, instead of overhauling that, the system.
1: That refers to low-income low Trump voters,
2: Yes, yes, and highly sexually objectified women, right? Right, right, right.
0: And look, you know, it's not just the low income, it's the conservative person who has that worldview.
2: Yeah, don't touch my boat. Or, yeah, yeah, right. right. And here we are to worldviews, you know, to circle back to terror management theory. And I think everything we've talked about today, the worldview that's being sort of cherished here is a, a world where gender relations are about subjects and objects just, okay. and that we want to preserve that, that that's the worldview. And it's a worldview that has to do with gender relations.
0: And
1: it can change.
2: Right. Yes. Says the optimist. Says the
1: <laughs> optimist. <laughs>
2: yes. Yes. It, it can change. And I'm, I'm thrilled about, To the naive observer, it's probably ridiculous for me to be thrilled about the victory in the 10th Circuit about female toplessness. But now that we've talked, maybe you can see why I am. Um, Completely. Yeah, yeah.
0: So folks, we've been talking with Tommy Ann Roberts about feminist existentialism, objectification theory, several related psychological and legal issues. Tomy Ann, thank you for a, a
1: wonderful conversation. This has been great.
2: Thank you so much, both of you. I've enjoyed myself so much.
1: Well, I hope you're going to be our guest again because I think we have a lot more to talk about. After I
2: bet this. we do. Yeah. You're,
1: yeah. A great, you're a great guest. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tommy Ann Roberts about feminist existentialism, objectification theory, and the related problems that women experience. So, Steve, what are your takeaways? Well, it's hard to put
0: yourself in someone else's shoes, especially if you're a guy and the shoes are a woman's. But Tomi Ann really makes the woman's perspective easy to understand and share. She really does. Right? Her examples are great. Well, she takes an esoteric concept like the subject-object-othering of the female body in Western art and contemporary advertising and so on
1: and makes it clear and personal. She explained the sexual objectifying of the female body, which is characterized by reducing girls and women to their bodies, thinking that their bodies sort of represent them, and then having that body become commodified as a chronic experience of girls and women in our culture.
0: She and her colleague Barbara Fredrickson developed objectification theory. It explains the problem for girls and women who come to internalize that perspective on who they are they become other to themselves. They're pushed to objectify themselves.
1: That's right, and this ties back to terror management theory and the ideas of Ernest Becker that humans have a problem with our animality. We go to great lengths to deny our mortality, and one of the ways we do that is to separate ourselves from our body's animal processes.
0: Tomi Ann says our culture doesn't want us to have a creaturely body. What a woman is supposed to have is a sanitized, denuded, deodorized, slender, big-breasted, narrow-hipped, idealized body. It
1: sounds like a Barbie doll.
0: (laughs) Yeah, doesn't it? And if someone were to say something like, does Beyonce poop, everybody would be, wait, no, of course, like
1: obviously Beyonce does not poop, right? (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) I know. Then we get to the idea... Of the sort of threat of the creaturely body and its psychic threat, again tied to our creatureliness and death denial. As Tomian says, do not remind me that I live in a body. And so the female breast, in its creaturely way, is somehow disorderly. It's threatening. It's a problem for us. This is all very Bacarian. Isn't it? It's Feminist Existentialism 101 level course.
0: Okay. We then discuss the hypocrisy that underlies things like toplessness ordinances. Tomi Ann has been an expert witness in several lawsuits, and her experiences are fascinating. For example, she argues that putting a bikini top on a four-year-old sexualizes her, that to cover a body part is to sexualize it. To say, you may not look under the little girl's bikini top is to imply that there's something problematic underneath.
1: The judge in one of those cases, relying on Tomian's research, wrote, The naked female breast is seen as disorderly or dangerous because society, from Renaissance paintings to Victoria's Secret commercials, has conflated the female breast with genitalia. By forcing women to cover up their bodies, society has made naked women's breasts something to seek. In the same way, menstruation is associated with disgust
0: and contamination. She said, revelation of menstrual status on the part of women themselves gives them terrible feelings of shame. Our culture has managed to make women ashamed of a thoroughly human bodily function shared by half the population of the planet.
1: And her story about her experience with Harvey Weinstein was jarring, wasn't it? She may very well have been the first Me Too story, she said the casting couch is real.
0: You know, the fact that we have a name for it says a lot. Who doesn't know what a casting
1: couch is for? And Rush Limbaugh called her and her partner feminazis, something I consider to be a badge of honor.
0: Tomi Ann said women are competing with other women by leveraging the sexualized body. She feels as though misogyny is the toughest nut to crack it becomes very difficult to recognize the sisterhood that is required for true gender equality. What a beautiful concept,
1: the sisterhood. Something to work toward. Indeed. She said, The worldview where gender relations are about subjects and objects can change. Men are missing out on the opportunity to coexperience all these remarkable things that bodies do. It's a wonderful part of existence, the existence that we have in this flawed body. I like it. Important ideas, Steve? Yes, they are. Thank you, Tomian.
0: Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. And you can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com
1: And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com www.patreon.com The Hub Important Ideas. We are 100% listener-supported.
0: And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.